Now, the 25th chapter of the book of Leviticus begins with the statute for the Jubilee years. Now, this is important to understand because it is this very statute uh, that gives cause for the clause of the kinsman redeemer. And we're going to read a few verses and just sort of explain some things about what the nation of Israel did and how that land transactions worked. You understand, I hope, that that uh, ancient uh, Hebrew society was a theocratic society. And what we mean by that is that the basis for their social laws and social interactions uh, came from the Word of God. And as we uh, read these things, uh, a lot of times we'll read them and you'll think, well, what does that have to do with me? Uh, well, the Bible wasn't just written for you. <laughs> it was written for you and written for me. Uh, but long before you or me came along, these things had very practical everyday application. They still have uh, application in the idea of principles and pictures and things of that sort, as God was uh, painting the portrait of redemption for us. But uh, And certainly dispensationally, these things lay out sort of a structure for how God would deal with humanity through the ages. But for the ancient Hebrew, these had very real, everyday, practical applications. Uh, how did they live? What could they buy and sell? How was a transaction like that supposed to take place? In fact, many of the laws in the book of Leviticus, you'll read them, and they'll say, hey, if your cow gets out and kills somebody else's cow, you've got to buy them a cow. And, uh, you know, don't you wish that, that Congress worked that way? That's just too much common sense for our government. And, uh, you know, there, there was just uh, everyday laws and statutes. And in Leviticus chapter 25, let's read a few verses here. The Lord spake unto Moses in Mount Sinai, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, When ye come into the land which I give you, then shall the land keep a Sabbath unto the Lord. Now, what is a Sabbath? A Sabbath is a rest, a period of rest. Six years thou shalt sow thy field, and six years thou shalt prune thy vineyard, and gather in the fruit thereof. But in the seventh year shall be a Sabbath of rest unto the land, a Sabbath for the Lord. Thou shalt neither sow thy field, nor prune thy vineyard, to which uh, groweth, or that which groweth of its own accord, of thy harvest thou shalt not reap, Neither gather the grapes of thy vine undressed, for it is a year of rest unto the land. And the Sabbath of the land shall be meat for you, for thee and for thy servant and for thy maid and for thy hired servant and for thy stranger that sojourneth with thee, and for thy cattle and for the beasts that are in thy land shall all the increase thereof be meat. And thou shalt number seven Sabbaths of years unto thee, seven times seven years, and the space of the seven Sabbaths of years shall be unto thee forty and nine years. That's basic math there. Then shalt thou cause the trumpet of the Jubilee to sound on the tenth day of the seventh month. In the day of atonement shall ye make the trumpet sound throughout all your land. And ye shall hallow the fiftieth year and proclaim liberty throughout all the land. That's on the liberty bell, by the way. And all the inhabitants thereof. It shall be a jubilee unto you, and ye shall return every man unto his possession, and ye shall return every man unto his family. A jubilee shall that fiftieth year be unto you. Ye shall not sow, neither reap that which groweth of itself in, uh, of itself in it, nor gather the grapes in it of thy vine undressed. For it is the jubilee, it shall be holy unto you. Ye shall eat the increase thereof out of the field. In the year of this jubilee, ye shall return every man unto his possession. And if thou sell aught unto thy neighbor, or buyest aught of thy neighbor's hand, ye shall not oppress one another. 
According to the number of years after the jubilee, thou shalt buy of thy neighbor, and according unto the number of years of the fruits, he shall sell unto thee. According to the multitude of years, thou shalt increase the price thereof, and according to the fewness of years, thou shalt diminish the price of it. For according to the number of the years of the fruits doth he sell unto thee. Ye shall not therefore oppress one another, but thou shalt fear thy God, for I am the Lord your God. Wherefore ye shall do my statutes, and keep my judgments, and do them, and ye shall dwell in the land in safety. And the land shall yield her fruit, and ye shall eat your fill, and dwell therein in safety. And ye shall say, What shall we eat the seventh year? Behold, we shall not sow nor gather in our increase. Then I will command my blessing upon you in the sixth year, and it shall bring forth fruit for three years, and ye shall sow the eighth year, and eat yet of old fruit until the ninth year, until her fruits come in, ye shall eat of the old store. The land shall not be sold forever, for the land is mine, for ye are strangers and sojourners with me, and in all the land of your possession ye shall grant a redemption for the land. Now, as we read that introductory material, it's important to note that the premise and principle behind this was that the land didn't belong to the people, rather it belonged to the Lord. And as such, God had divided the land of Canaan into different portions for the tribes, and God's will was that those uh, tribes would not uh, intermingle the land that they owned and the possessions they owned one with another, but that those boundaries would stay static and would stay put. And so God's provision for this was that for six years they could sow and sell and buy and work the land, and every seventh year they had to let the land rest. Now, I'm not an agricultural major, but I do know enough about land and, and enough about growing things to know that land does get worn out. If you work it continuously and don't give an opportunity to rest, even the old-timers uh, in this part of the country uh, had enough sense to give the, that opportunity. They'd rotate their crops. They, they'd let a field rest for a little while. Well, God knew about this long before the old farmer's almanac did. And so he told his people every seventh year, you just let things rest. And I'll bless you in the sixth year so that you'll have enough to get you through the seventh year. And, and then in the eighth year, where you've not sown in that previous year, uh, you'll eat the, the things that have been left over. And uh, so God had made this provision. Well, after seven sevens, in other words, after seven periods of seven years, uh, and it's basic math, 49 years, in the 50th year, they'd have a jubilee year. And what that would mean is is basically that, that God would hit the big reset button on real estate transactions. In other words, everything that had been sold and traded would go back to the original families that possessed it. God did this to maintain uh, the, the portions that he had given to the tribes of Israel. You say, well, how did they figure that? How did they work that? Well, uh, they almost treated it like a lease. And uh, they would, let's say you're in the 10th year of the Jubilee year, well, you'd uh, lease that land, you'd purchase that land according to the next 40 years that you could keep it. If you were in the 40th year, you'd purchase it according to the next 10 years that you could keep it. They always understood that the land would go back to the original possessor. The reason for this is because the land was really owned by God and the people were really owned by God, and uh, as such, they were respecting the boundaries he had laid out uh, for the tribes. Now you say, preacher, why did we read all that? Why is that significant? Well, it's significant because of what's said in verse number 24. And in all the land of your possession, ye shall grant a redemption for the land. 
Now, what God is talking about there is He's saying this. If for whatever reason someone has lost their land and they have a desire to get that land back, I have some provisions for how that can take place. Uh, there were three different uh, sort of, of uh, instances like this, and we're going to read a couple of them here in Leviticus and then one in Deuteronomy. But I want you to look at your outline here, and I want you to notice with me the call for a kinsman. Now, if they, if they were able to redeem it themselves, then they could, but they weren't always able to. And so God made a provision for a kinsman to come in and to pay that debt and to restore the things that had been borrowed against and the things that had been lost uh, through their lending. And there are three different basic things that this applied to. I want you to notice that first off, they could redeem the land that had been lost. Look what it says in uh, verse number 25. It says, If any, or if thy brother be waxen poor, and hath sold away some of his possession, and if any of his kin come to redeem it, then shall he redeem that which his brother sold. And if the man have none to redeem it, and himself be able to redeem it, then let him count the years of the sale thereof, and restore the overplus unto the man to whom he sold it, that he may return unto his possession. But if he be not able to restore it to him, then that which is sold shall remain in the hand of him that hath bought it until the year of Jubilee. And in the Jubilee it shall go out, and he shall return unto his possession. So if a man was... Uh, fell on hard times, and he and he had to do something to provide uh, food and to provide money for his family. He could sell his land, but he always had the opportunity uh, to go back and to buy that land back for himself. Sort of like pawning. Uh, if you've ever dealt with pawn shops, hope you've never had to. But if you had, then you know what that's like. You go in and you you give that to that pawn shop. You sell it to them. And uh, if you if you pawn it to them, then they say we're going to keep this for such and such a time. And you can come back and you can buy it back for a certain amount of money. Well, God says that if land was lost, then that person that had lost it or one of his near kin had the right to go back, pay that debt, and redeem that land out from that mortgage. Look down at verse number 47. Uh, now, there's a lot of things that are in between where what we're jumping over here, and, and they're important, and I don't mean to imply they're not, but they deal with uh, dwelling houses and, and walled cities and things like that, and, and they sort of deal with some of the particulars of those matters. But look down at verse number 47. So there was a provision to redeem the land, but it says in verse 47, And if a sojourner or stranger wax rich by thee, and thy brother that dwelleth by him wax poor, and sell himself unto the stranger or sojourner by thee, or to the stock of the stranger's family, after that he is sold, he may be redeemed again. One of his brethren may redeem him, either his uncle or his uncle's son may redeem him, or any that is nigh of kin unto him of his family may redeem him, or if he be able, he may redeem himself. He shall reckon with him that bought him, uh, from the year that he was sold to him unto the year of Jubilee, and the price of his sale shall be according unto the number of years, according to the time of an hired servant, shall it be with him. So not only was there a provision to redeem the land, but there was a provision to redeem the liberty of those that had sold themselves into slavery. Now, you hear people talk all the time about, well, the Bible endorses slavery, and the Bible endorses slavery. No, you read your Bible carefully, it does not endorse slavery. Now, there are admonitions in the New Testament for slaves to be obedient unto their masters. I don't see in any way where that advocates slavery. 
I mean, hey, if I if I tell you that you need to obey your doctor's orders, I'm not saying it's a good idea to get sick, am I? Right? That's the circumstances they were in under the Roman Empire. But the slavery that is in the Old Testament, there is a clear distinction made between the, the hired servitude and the slavery uh, and, and the differences between those, between the Gentiles and between the Jews. In fact, there are separate statutes given uh, for the hired servant. And in fact, the hired servant had uh, the ability, he could not be kept any longer than six years. And uh, he would have gotten that condition because he got into debt and sold himself into slavery. In other words, it was illegal for you to go and kidnap, shanghai someone, hold them against their will. But there was a provision for someone to contract their labor out for a period of six years. And if you were to read in Exodus chapter uh, 21, you'd find that provision for the hired servant, that in the seventh year he had the ability to go out free. And, uh, of course, that's a picture of, of, of us uh, loving Christ and serving him out of love. He had also the provision to stay with his master uh, forever if he chose to do so. But that was hired servitude. It was not taking people against their will and trapping them in a poor socioeconomic state, but it was rather people of their own volition that chose to contract themselves into servitude for a period of no more than six years. Gentiles didn't play by these rules. And that's the reason it says that if, if a stranger or a sojourner come in and one of these Hebrews be foolish enough to sell himself to that sojourner who's not going to respect the laws of the hired servant, if that happens and he's lost his liberty and he's in chains, God has made a provision. If that's going on inside the land, God said that there's a provision that he can be bought back by one of his near kin. And if they were going to dwell in the land, part of the things that they would have to follow is the, the pricing of that. And that was priced according to the Jubilee year as well. So we see that the kinsman redeemer would be called if there was a plot of land uh, that had to be uh, redeemed. They'd be called if there was a slave uh, that could be redeemed. But then notice down in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 25. Turn with me Deuteronomy chapter 25. There's a third instance in which a kinsman would be called. Uh, they would be called to redeem the land, and they'd be called to redeem the liberty of those that had found themselves in chains. But Deuteronomy chapter 25 has a very unique provision for the responsibility of a kinsman, and it is this which has such particular application uh, to Ruth's situation. Now, let me say that in a sense, Ruth embodied all three of these. Ruth embodied all three of these because she was connected to the, to the household, to the property that had belonged to Elimelech. Evidently, when Elimelech and Naomi went down into Moab, they did not make provision to take care financially of the, the estate that belonged to them. And in some way, it had fell into mortgage, had fell into debt, and it had been bought uh, by somebody. And uh, because of that, when Naomi comes home, she has no home initially to go to. And because Ruth belongs to a descendant of Elimelech, belongs to one of Elimelech's sons, she is the widow of one of Elimelech's sons, uh, she is attached to this estate. So when we talk about redeeming the land, Boaz absolutely did that. You say, why does that matter, preacher? Well, there's two reasons it matters. And we'll, we'll really get deep into it here in a second. But one reason that it matters is because Christ is the redeemer of the land of Israel. Israel has sold themselves into bondage to a Babylonian world system. They have, uh, they have turned their back on their sacred creed and covenant uh, to maintain and to stay 
in the land. And I understand that right now there's a lot of debate. I mean, there's there's Jews that want to be there uh, that that are not being allowed to to settle in the way that they ought to be allowed to to settle. But let me say this: there's a lot of Jews that have no desire to be back in Israel. Hey, Hollywood, California is full of them. New York City's full of them. A secular Jew is still a Jew. They still have that covenant relationship, and I'm not implying that they are uh, born again just by virtue of, of being ethnically a Jew. But remember, the Jews are an earthly people, and God made a covenant with an earthly people. And uh, they have left that land, have no desire to go back to that land, many of them. Uh, so they've sold themselves into a Babylonian system. Uh, but one of these days when Christ returns and he sets up his earthly kingdom, uh, the capital is going to be Jerusalem. And he will redeem the land and he'll expel all uh, those that practice iniquity and all those that hate the elect people of God. And then also I think that this applies to Ruth because Ruth being a Gentile, uh, when she entered into the land of Israel, she's a Gentile widow. The only person she has on her side is a fellow widow. Uh, very likely she was headed towards slavery and servitude. She would have had no one to look after her interests. And so when Boaz redeems her, he is redeeming her from a life of bondage. You say, well, I don't know about that. Well, where was she at when Boaz found her? She was gleaning in the fields. That was a provision for the poorest of the poor. So Ruth embodied all three of these. But Ruth in a very particular way. And I, I guess if, you know, when, when you hear court cases or when you read about court cases, they'll, they'll cite a court case. You know, I mean, you know, Harrison, uh, you know, V. Edmonds or whatever. If there was a, a law on the books that Boaz was, was referencing when he bought Ruth, it was this in Deuteronomy chapter 25. Look at verse number 5. The Bible says, If brethren dwell together, and one of them die and have no child, the wife of the dead shall not marry without unto a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go in unto her and take her to him to wife and perform the duty of an husband's brother unto her. And it shall be that the firstborn which she beareth shall succeed in the name of his brother which is dead, that his name be not put out of Israel. And if the man like not to take his brother's wife, then let his brother's wife go up to the gate unto the elders and say, My husband's brother refuseth to raise up unto his brother a name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of my husband's brother. Then the elders of his city shall call him and speak unto him. And if he stand to it and say, I like not to take her, then shall his brother's wife come unto him in the presence of the elders and loose his shoe from off his foot and spit in his face and shall answer and say, So shall it be done unto that man that will not build up his brother's house. And his name shall be called in Israel the house of him that hath his shoe loosed. Now, understand there's a lot of cultural truth and implication found here. Do you remember back a few years ago when George Bush was in office, that fella threw a shoe at him? Anybody remember that? That was funny. I, I liked George Bush, but that was funny. <laughs> and uh, and George Bush sort of thought it was funny. He was ducking and dodging. and But you see, to that man, that meant something very significant. Because to a man in the Middle East, to remove your shoe and to throw it at someone is, is of the highest insult. In fact, notice what this is coupled with. She takes the shoe off of his foot and then what? Spits in his face. This is her way of saying, you had a duty to me that you did not fulfill, and so you're going to bear shame because of it. Now, that's going to mean a lot when we get down into chapter number four. You're going to see that take place 
in the, in the book of Ruth. But the truth that is found here is that a kinsman would be called to redeem the land, and a kinsman would be called to redeem the liberty of those that had gone into bondage, but a kinsman would be called to redeem the lineage of a man who had no children. You've got to remember that Naomi is a widow. Now, the, the initial responsibility that Boaz had was not to Ruth. It was to Naomi. You say, preacher, does that mean anything? You better believe it means something. To the Jew first, and also to the Greek. You've got to remember, at Ruth, she's the Gentile. She's a picture of the church. Naomi, she's a picture of backslidden Israel. That covenant was not made with the Gentiles. That covenant was made with the Jews. And we, by faith, have been privileged to enter into that because they rejected their Messiah, nailed him to the cross, and then even concerning the gospel, it went to the Jews first and they weren't interested in it. They pushed it away. And so Paul said, from henceforth, I'm going to go unto the Gentiles. So the first duty that Boaz had was to Naomi. But here's the problem. Naomi wouldn't bear any children. She was too old. And so in the same way that the first duty and responsibility was to the Jew concerning the gospel, the gospel went unto them, but they didn't bear any fruit. There was no life in them. And so as Boaz seeks to purchase the property and the estate of Elimelech, uh, the next available uh, person in line that is of childbearing age is Ruth. You see, Naomi's husband Elimelech died. But remember that Ruth also is a widow that has no children to her name. And so the next person in line was Ruth. That's part of the reason that Naomi, we talked about last week, she got excited when she heard Boaz's name. She says, whose field have you been gleaning in? And and Ruth says, his name's Boaz. And she goes, Boaz? Man, that's good news because he is of near kin unto us. Maybe he has the right of redemption over you. So that's the reason that you begin to see these things play out. Now, stop and think about the implication of that. The, the nearest kinsman was to go in, perform the duty uh, of a brother, and, and was to uh, bear a child with that woman. That first child uh, would, would be given the estate of the father that had deceased. Every child after that would be reckoned along with the inheritance of that couple's other children. But the first one was given the estate of, uh, of the father that had passed away. So literally, this family line is dead. But the kinsman redeemer can make it live again. He is literally the resurrection and the life to this family. So this were the that, that was what called for a kinsman. That would have been the, the, the circumstance. If somebody said, Hey, is there a kinsman around? It would have been for one of these three reasons. But now not anybody could be a kinsman. There were some qualifications that had to be met. And I want you to notice them. Uh, we're not going to necessarily look back into the text to find them. Some of them are explicit. Some of them are implicit. Uh, but the first one is this. He had to be of near kin. You, you wouldn't be a very good kinsman redeemer if you weren't a kinsman. That's the reason that in chapter number uh, 4, Boaz has to go to a kinsman that's nearer. And I was asked last week or the week before uh, as to the significance of that, that nearer kinsman. I, I believe if you're looking for a picture and a type that that nearer kinsman is the law. Uh, we had an association with the law, but Christ paid the debt that we had to the law, and he bought us out. Uh, but first, the law had to be answered, because they were a kinsman nearer to us than Christ. So he had to be of near kin. He had to be free. In other words, he couldn't pay anybody else's debt until his own debts were paid. 
He had to be able to redeem. In fact, we see that in the text. It talks about that a person could redeem themselves if they be able. Well, Boaz was able to redeem Ruth, but not all kinsmen were. And then finally, he must be willing to do that. He had to have a desire. And that was the problem with the kinsman that is nearer in chapter number four. He probably, he, he definitely had the right. He probably had the resources, but he did not have the desire to redeem Ruth. Now, you say, well, what about all that, preacher? Well, think with me of our Savior. He had to be of near kin to Ruth. Couldn't be distant kin. Had to be of near kin. Listen to what it says in Galatians chapter 4. Even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. You know, the difficult thing as I as I jotted verses down in these notes was, was trying to decide what to include and what to leave out. Because I could take you to a hundred verses that convey that same truth. The Bible says in John chapter 1 that he was made flesh and dwelt amongst us. The Bible says it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren. And then in Romans chapter 8, on your page there, you can see it for what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh. God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemned sin in the flesh. You see, it was necessary that Christ become man that he might redeem you and I. If he was going to take our place on Calvary, then he had to become flesh and bone just like you and me. Now, I'm not minimizing the differences between the divine Son of God made flesh for us and a lost sinner like you and me. I'm not minimizing or diminishing those at all. But I think sometimes we minimize the fact that he became man for us. You know, time and again, others called him the son of David and the son of Abraham, but he never called himself that. You know what he called himself? He called himself the son of God and he called himself the son of man. He was touched with the feelings of our infirmities. He was tempted in all points like as we are yet without sin. So Christ, he passes the first qualification of a near kinsman. He became near kin unto humanity. And then look at the second one. He's got to be free. Uh, now, I think this would be a pretty good idea if we kind of did this in society today, that you don't go taking out debt till you've paid off your debt. I knew it would be a little quiet when I said that because everybody's got debt now, but what if our government worked that way? Well, in that time and in Jewish culture, to redeem someone else's debt, you had to have your own debts paid. Or let me make a more distinct application. A slave could not redeem another slave. They had to be a free man in society to do so, and the implication was this, that you could not buy the freedom of another if you didn't have freedom yourself. You know, I, you hear people talk about, you know, people going, dying and going to hell and paying their own debt. And I know that Paul said that, you know, that he would wish himself a curse from Christ uh, for his kinsmen's uh, sake, for his kin, the Jews. But do you know that nobody could have paid your sin debt but Jesus Christ? Because every other person ever born had their own sin debt they would have had to have paid first. Listen to what the Bible says about Christ in 2 Corinthians 5.21. For he, speaking of God, hath made him, speaking of Christ, to be sin for us, speaking of Toby Weber, who knew no sin, that's speaking of Christ, that's not speaking of me, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. 
Can I give you another text? And I can't give you the, the reference to it, but the Bible says uh, that though he was rich, yet became he poor for your sakes. He didn't have any debt to pay. He didn't have a sin debt. The Bible says it in three different ways. It says here in uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21 that he knew no sin. The Bible also tells us uh, that in him was no sin. And the Bible tells us that he did no sin. Meaning that uh, he knew no sin. He had no secret sins of the heart. Uh, he did no sin. He had no outward sins in actions or in the flesh. And that in him was no sin. He also had no sin nature. I completely and wholeheartedly reject the notion that Jesus Christ ever sinned or ever had a sin nature. I have heard people say, uh, famous people, and I, I'm here to talk about the Lord, not to talk about them, but I've heard famous people, people whose names you'd know, stand up and say that Jesus had to fight the same sin nature that you and I have to. That is absolutely false. That is damnable heresy. He didn't have a sin nature. He had absolutely no sin within him or without him. The Bible says that he was separate from sinners. So he was free. He meets that qualification. He must be able. Now, there's several verses that we could read. Now, again, I had to sort of just pick and choose because I yeah, it would have been eight pages long if I would put everything in there I wanted to. But when we talk about able, there are two aspects to it. Uh, in fact, one of the reasons, and some people believe that this might have been the reason that the nearer kinsmen rejected uh, the right to redeem the, uh, the household and the estate of Elimelech, is because this, one of the responsibilities would have been to have married Ruth. One of the responsibilities would have been to have taken care of her. Now, men, I don't know what kind of wife you have, but I can tell you what kind of wife I have. And I can tell you that she's very sweet. And she's very understanding. But if I went home and said, now, honey, listen, there's this poor little girl and she ain't got nobody, and I think I ought to marry her and stay married to you, I'd be out in the cold. Right? By the same token, some of you ladies, you can testify to this. You ever ran across a deal that was just too good to pass up? Oh, man. If the Lord still struck liars dead, <laughs> have you ever run across a deal that's just too good to pass up? And you didn't have the money for it, and you, you laid in bed and tossed from one side to another just thinking about that price tag sitting on that item, just tore all to pieces because you weren't getting that good deal and no one else was getting it either. You see, another reason that they might not redeem that land is because even though they had the money to buy it, they didn't have the means to sustain it. So to say that they had to be able to redeem it implies two things. One, they had to be able to pay the back debt. Well, let me ask you this. Could Jesus Christ pay the back debt? The Bible says that he was offered for sins that are past, the Bible says. I wish I'd put that verse down. For sins that are past. Listen to what it says in 1 Peter 1, 18, 19. For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation, received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. You see, when he died on the cross and he said it is finished, it was finished. Not it's finished until you take communion, or it's finished till you get baptized, or it's finished till you join a church, or it's finished till you work real hard. It is finished. To add anything to the finished work of Christ on Calvary is to tell Jesus that it wasn't finished. 
It was finished, still is finished. His blood was sufficient to pay our past sin debt. But now let me ask you this. He's able to pay, but was he able to provide for us after he saved us? Or let me put it this way. He was able to save us. Is he able to keep us saved? Listen to what the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. Wherefore he, speaking of Jesus Christ, he is able. I like that. Let me tell you something. It'd be good if we'd just underscore that about a hundred times, just that little phrase, those three words, he is able. You say, but preacher, that's just talking about salvation. Well, hey, if it's talking about salvation, you think he ain't able to do any and everything else? Wherefore, he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. I've heard people say things like this, from the guttermost to the uttermost. But what they're implying there is that, that God can save even the chiefest of sinners. Well, that's true. God can save the chiefest of sinners. But that's not what the writer of Hebrews is talking about when he says save to the uttermost. Uh, could we maybe put it, put it this way? Uh, when he saves you, he's able to save you to the farthest reach of your Christian walk, to the very uttermost length that you might travel and go. Why? Because he ever liveth to make intercession for them. Listen, when he saved you on Calvary, he didn't bail on you. <laughs> he's seated at the right hand of God the Father. That relationship did not just uh, begin and end at that point at Calvary. That's point linear. It began there, but it goes on indefinitely throughout all eternity. He didn't bail on you. He didn't leave you. He'll never leave you nor forsake you. Whenever he uh, saved you, he saved you to stay with you and to sustain you. So he's able to provide for us. Boaz, in fact, talks about this in in chapter number 4, and we'll get to it in a couple of weeks, but, but he talks about that. He says, I have redeemed uh, Naomi, and I've redeemed Ruth, and I've redeemed the land, and I'm here to provide for all of it. So when Boaz married Ruth, he didn't just marry her for the moment. He married her for the rest of her life and promised to see to her needs. So he had to be able. Now, here's, here's one final one. We know Jesus is able, uh, but was he willing? Here again was a truth where my struggle was what to weed out. And I finally just picked one verse, uh, or actually it's two verses, but one, one, one place in Scripture to talk about this, and I could have picked hundreds. But the Bible says this, For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved, and to come unto the knowledge of the truth. Let me tell you something, you can't get away from that. It don't matter what kind of theological cartwheels you try to do, you can't get away from that. God is not willing that any should perish. God wants all men to be saved. I know not all men are going to be saved, and guess what? God knows not all men are going to be saved either. But that doesn't mean he doesn't want all men to be saved. He is willing that all should be saved. He commandeth all men everywhere to repent. He's not bluffing them. He'd save them. If they'd come unto him, he knows they won't all come unto him, but he would save them, and he wants to save them, and he's able to save them. He's willing to save the sinner. Aren't you glad for the day that it came to be known in your heart and mind that God was willing to save you? You may have been one of those. Not everybody's this way, but some folks, they spend some time under conviction, and they don't get saved right away because they think, God don't want me. God don't want me. Oh, what a day it must have been in their heart and life when they realized God does want me. Imagine what it was like for Ruth 
uh, and Naomi, you know, Naomi's the one, she's sitting at home, you know, working her needlepoint down to the nubs and got, you know, got the lamp burning and wondering what's going on with Ruth and Boaz. And she sent Ruth out and said, listen, go lay at his feet, ask him if he'll redeem you. And don't you know, it was good news for Naomi when Ruth came a-busting through the door and said, Mama, he said yes. He's willing. He's willing. He's willing. Well, Jesus is willing to save the sinner. And then finally, and I just want to run through these. There's seven of them, so we won't have a lot of time uh, for each one. But I want you to notice the characteristics of our kinsmen. Now, we understand that you and I were in the same condition. Lost man is in the same condition uh, as, as Ruth was in. We were sold to our sin debt. We belonged to the devil. We belonged to death. Our, our life was as good as over. We were snuffed out. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. But the kinsman redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ, came and paid our debt. He came and redeemed us from the bondage of sin. He came and raised us to walk in newness of life and quickened us and made us to live again. He is our kinsman redeemer. And let's notice a few characteristics. And I've got some references. We won't read all of them, but we will mention all of them. You can see the references to the book of Ruth out to the right of each one. Number one, we notice he is our kinsman redeemer. The Bible says in Romans 3.24, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And again, you must remember that each of these terms have very distinct meaning. We've spent a lot of time tonight talking about redemption, helping you to hopefully understand the idea of redemption, the buying back of something that has been lost. But all of these terms, being saved, being forgiven, being justified, being sanctified, being adopted, all of these different terms have that same spectrum of unique identity concerning the work of Christ on Calvary. I encourage you to spend a little time studying each of them. Find out what it means that we're sanctified. Find out what it means that we're justified. Find out what it means that we're adopted. Find all these things out. It's very distinct language. We have been bought back and bought with a price by the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our kinsman redeemer. He is the restorer of life to us. And that's mentioned down in uh, chapter number 4. That's actually other people that say that about Naomi and about Boaz. They talk about Boaz and they say that Boaz has been a restorer of life to Naomi. You can sort of imagine, Naomi thought her life was over, man. I mean, she thought there was nothing left for her. She comes back, she says, I left full, I came home empty. When she finds out that God's working and moving, she says that the Lord hath not left off his kindness to the living and the dead. She says, I thought God had forgot about me, but he hadn't forgot about me. I mean, if Naomi had written the rest of her life down from chapter 1, it would have been bleak and abysmal. Probably nothing but a few sad, sorry, lonely syllables, and then a, a, an impending period to place the punctuation of death and despair upon her story. But she didn't get to write the rest of it. Oh, man, let me just... It, whoo, she didn't get to write the Aren't you glad God don't let you write the rest of it? Man, there's times I would have wrote finish on my story. That's the way I felt. I felt like it was done. I felt like it was over. I felt like there was nothing good to be said. But aren't you glad God don't let us hold the pen? He holds the pen. He writes the story. And he said, Naomi, there's more to be written. And you come down in chapter number one, and, and she's the, the lonely, despairing widow coming home from her backslidden condition. But you see her in chapter number four, and there she sits with little Obed upon her lap. I tell you, there ain't nothing warms up an old woman more than a little baby in her arms. 
And they looked and they saw her and they said, Blessed be the Lord and blessed be Boaz. He's been a restorer of life to her. She thought nothing but death was ahead of her. And look at the little bundle of life she holds in her arms. Now she has purpose once again. Well, you know, that's true for you and me concerning Jesus Christ. We had no future. We were like Orpah. I mean, if we had walked away from Christ, we would have walked off of the pages of Scripture into the obscurity of unbelief. There would have been nothing worth saying about you and me. But listen to what it says in John chapter 11. Uh, John said this to the sister of Lazarus. Jesus said, or Jesus said this. Jesus said unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. He gives us life and life more abundant. He's the restorer of life. He's the provider of grace. You remember what Ruth asked of Boaz, says, why have I found grace? In your sight. Boaz gives her an answer. But that just looks forward to Jesus Christ. Because the Bible says in John 1.17, For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. He is the full embodiment of the grace of God. We didn't do anything to deserve Him. We didn't do anything to be worthy of Him. But God, through His infinite grace, could, could I put it this way? God, through His infinite godness, <laughs> through His infinite godness, through who He was, We didn't have enough love to get the job done, but hey, guess what? God is love. So he got the job done. Through who he is, through his grace, we've been redeemed. And that was brought to us through Jesus Christ. We see in chapter number 3 of the book Ruth that Boaz is the giver of rest to Ruth. Now, this is true in two different ways. It's true in one sense because she has been working and laboring out, gleaning in the field, and she comes to Boaz and she rests at his feet. And there at his feet she finds a place of rest and repose. But in a broader sense it's true as well because, listen now, she gleaned in his field. But after she sat in his feet, we don't ever hear about her gleaning in his field again. You say, what's the significance of that preacher? Well, when he came to, when she came to him, he met every need that she had, and she learned what real rest was. Now, I understand there's a lot of application, and just because we worship at his feet, that don't mean we don't need to work out in his field. I, I, I understand that. But let me say this, the Bible talks about us resting from our own labors. The book of Hebrews talks about entering into a rest. She found a pathway to his feet through the fields. But once she got to his feet, you know what she did? She rested from her own labors. She still she still ate of Boaz's corn and wheat, but she didn't have to go and pick it and glean it herself. Let me tell you something. It's a grand and glorious day in our Christian life when we learn that true strength is found through rest in Jesus Christ. It's not through striving, it's through surrender. It's not through trying and toiling, it's through leaning back and following the leading of the Holy Ghost and allowing God to do in our lives what He wants to do, rather than through our own self-efforts. He's the giver of rest. In chapter number 2, we see He's the Lord of the harvest. Uh, and, I, and I sort of put uh, one reference down there, but you could also look at verses 4 and 5 of chapter 2, because here Boaz comes down. And uh, and he's coming down to Bethlehem to look at everything. We talked about this last week. But you remember that he said to the man that was over the harvest, the man that was over the reapers, he said to him, he said, listen, let Ruth get into the sheaves, give her a little bit extra, and allow her to take more home than the other gleaners. You know, it, it'd do us good if we'd learn in the work of God that that when things get a little lean, we ought to just pray to the Lord of the harvest and ask him to send laborers into the field. I say this to my own condemnation and to my own conviction that as a pastor, spend too much time trying to work it out. 
You know, trying to work it out. Always trying to get this person and that person to do this and to do that and trying to get this started up and trying to prop this up and keep things going. I promise you, if you ever, uh, if you ever pastored for a little while, can I tell you what it's like? I'm not complaining. I love pastoring, but pastoring sometimes it's like herding cats. You know? The second you get one person plugged in and into place, here she goes, another one flies out from the flock and you're chasing after them and it seems like every time you turn around, Hey, why don't we just learn to pray to the Lord of the harvest? It's his harvest. It's his field. It's his work. He's got the laborers, and he's able to bestow them. He's the Lord of the harvest. He's a supplier of needs to Ruth. Uh, he says in chapter number 4, he says, I have bought them, and I'm going to see to their needs. Now, how silly would it have been for Boaz to say, Now, Ruth, I have redeemed you. Now, go out and provide for yourself. No, that wouldn't have made sense. You see, the very fact that Boaz bought her implied that he was going to take care of her. Guess what? <laughs> Guess what? The Lord bought you. You're his, and he'll take care of you. Philippians chapter 4, verse 19, most of you could quote it in a heartbeat, says this, But my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. And then finally, in chapter number 4, we see, that Christ is our bridegroom. It's beautiful when you consider that the book of Ruth, it opens with a death and it ends with the birth of a baby. It opens with death, which is followed by a funeral. Guess what? It ends with a birth that's preceded by a wedding. Let me tell you something. It gets awful bleak when you look at this world. Let me remind you of something. You and I, we are on the winning side. I know sometimes it gets lonely and we long to see the face of our Savior, but I promise you there's coming a day where we won't have to long to see him anymore. There's coming a day when the bridegroom, he's returning for his bride, which is the church. Oh, what a day that'll be when he returns for those whom he has saved and bought and paid for. The Bible talks about that marriage day. And I listen, I understand there's a difference between the rapture and the marriage supper of the Lamb, but listen to how it describes it. It says, Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife hath made herself ready. What a day that's going to be when we're finally at rest with our Savior. He is our kinsman redeemer. Boaz was a kinsman redeemer to Ruth. How romantic it is. But we have an even greater romance that we can talk about. This romance of redemption where God has loved us and sought us and bought us and brought us out of sin's bondage and iniquity and into the heavenly places with Christ Jesus.